This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. China has sent Russia hundreds of millions of dollars worth of military equipment this year. A coup in Niger this week upset Germany's plans in North Africa. Israel's Supreme Court agreed to hear a petition to strike down a basic law, which would create a fierce controversy between the government and the court. Former President Barack Obama released a letter this week supporting sexually explicit books in school libraries. And our panel discussion is about the celebrations this week that marked the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. A reminder that America has won its last war. All this and more coming up next on Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, July the 28th. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet Writers. In studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. In our studio in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And joining us again from Jerusalem is Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. We have a major ongoing land war in Europe. Jeremiah Jacques, it's been going on for some time now, but it's as deadly as ever. Yes, that's right. And and the big story out of Asia this week is really about China's complicity in that war. Uh, so we'll get to that in a moment. But a small one here first about Japan's population. The, the data just came in for 2022. And during that year, Japan's population fell by 800,000 people. That is the country's sharpest decline on record. And it's the 14th consecutive year of falling population. At this point, more than half of Japan's municipalities are now designated as depopulated districts. You've got schools and businesses closing all over the country because the people are just not having babies. Um, And this kind of population decline is something that more and more rich countries are facing. The U.S. is actually one of very few advanced economies not facing demographic crisis, and that's largely because of immigration. Another story here is about China continuing the construction of its uh, naval base in Cambodia. New satellite imagery this week shows that significant progress has been made with that base, and China is close to completing a pier that could actually berth an aircraft carrier there. So this facility is coming online fast, and this will really boost China's ability to project naval power in some of the world's most important areas. And then before we get to the the big story about China's complicity in Russia's war on Ukraine, I wanted to squeeze in a short update just on the war itself. First of all, if you're on social media, you may notice a reduction in users telling you that the Russians are the good guys in the war and kind of the hapless victims. That's because a major farm of Russian bots was taken down on Sunday, about 150,000 SIM cards were represented at this farm, all working around the clock to, you know, just propagate all of Russia's talking points. So it's it's actually just a tiny fraction of Russia's total propaganda war. You know, if, if we could multiply this by a thousand, you'd see what's been hitting American and European societies for the last decade. But it's still good to know, I think, that some of the falsehoods, 150,000 SIM cards worth of them, are no longer corrupting the public discourse. And then a little bit on the war itself. The general consensus is that after six weeks of slow counteroffensive operations by the Ukrainians, 
you know, slow operations that could be called shaping tactics, just kind of targeting logistics and artillery. Um, after six weeks or so of that, this week, the main thrust of Ukraine's counteroffensive began. So thousands of Ukrainian soldiers who had been in training are now pouring into the grinding battle. And the, uh, the Ukrainians are focused on pushing south and east against the Russians. Russia, meanwhile, is attacking and, and apparently even back on the offense in the northeast. In both cases, the gains are very limited, and Ukraine still seems to be mostly stuck at the first line of Russian defenses in most places. The Russians planted hundreds of thousands of mines around those first lines, so it's proving very difficult for Ukraine to punch past them. But then just this morning, Russia did issue what sounded like a really urgent request to enter negotiations. So, you know, that may be a sign that Ukraine is beginning to punch through. So whatever the case is, it's getting very intense. Yeah. So tell us a little more about that Ukraine-Russia war and how it's being affected by China, uh, kind of on the other side of the of the continent. I mean, is China involved in that online propaganda or is it more of a, a what would you call it, a hardware contribution that they're making. Yeah, you know, I think China does have its armies of trolls, and they do assist with most of Russia's talking points. Um, so I'm sure they are assisting with that aspect of it. But this week, though, new proof came out showing just how much China is assisting the Russian war with uh, equipment, with actual equipment. Um, so there was a Politico Europe report, and their investigators combed through a great deal of customs data. And they found that China has sold Russia more than $100 million worth of drones this year. And these drones make a big difference on the battlefield. They enable operators to guide artillery fire and create maps. They can even be used to drop actual grenades in trenches. Uh, some drone models also have thermal optical sights, which allow Russian troops to target Ukrainians at night. So, you know, to have China selling Russia $100 million worth of these, it is making a difference in the war. And then this same report from Politico Europe, it also found that the Chinese have sold Russia $225 million worth of a type of ceramics that's used in body armor. So that's just a huge quantity. And it's an increase of nearly 70% over last year. And then also 100,000 combat helmets and 100,000 bulletproof vests, as well as significant quantities of light armored vehicles. Politico said that all of this customs data shows that the Chinese are, quote, delivering enough non-lethal but militarily useful equipment to Russia to have a material impact on the war, end quote. So, you know, China's doing this craftily, pretty creatively. They're finding these loopholes in Western sanctions and they're exploiting those. But the quantities of these items that China is sending, they are significant. They are having an impact, just helping the Russians kill more people and hold their, hold their lines there. And it shows that the Chinese are very much complicit in this war, even though they claim sometimes to be neutral. The Chinese have uh, lent very heavily in support of uh, Russia since the outset of Ukraine, despite the fact that, uh, of course, in his invasion of Ukraine, Putin tramples over two really critical uh, international um, uh, principles, those of, uh, of national sovereignty and those of territorial integrity, which the Chinese government proclaims to be ones that it believes in, and yet very clearly it's taken the side of Russia. That's uh, Richard Moore there, the head of MI6, and uh, all of this shows that China's claims of believing 
in those principles of international law that he mentioned there, all of those claims should be taken with really a dump truck of salt. You know, the Chinese Communist Party actually believes only in itself. And it is helping the Russians more and more. And I should also add that in Ukraine, proof of all this has been found. There have been several reports recently of Ukrainian soldiers capturing drones that the Russians are using and uh, finding them to be recently made Chinese models. There are other reports of China capturing uh, different kinds of Russian weaponry and finding components in them that are clearly Chinese. So, you know, this new Politico report, it is corroborated by those, those things happening on the ground. And it shows that part of the reason why the Russians still seem to have plenty of weaponry and other equipment uh, after more than 500 days of war is China. And that's what we know from official customs uh, documents. There, there could be uh, more than that, you would, you would presume. So wait a minute, are you saying the Chinese and Russian could do some creative bookkeeping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like you're saying there, it's really sending a message about that relationship between China and Russia. I mean, that's that's what really comes from this. There's there's meaningful uh, hardware, there's meaningful military equipment flowing from China to Russia in war for war for a specific war uh, in defiance of the West. And uh, that's uh that's sending a message. It is. Yes, it's sending a, a clear message. And, and really, these kinds of examples of deepening military cooperation between Russia and China, it's something that the trumpet carefully watches because this aligns with the forecasts that uh, the Bible told us to you know expect. We have an article called Why the Trumpet Watches Russia Allying with China. And it takes a look at several Bible passages, passages in the books of Ezekiel, Daniel, Matthew, and Revelation. These passages show that Russia and China will soon be pretty much fully allied together along with other Asian nations. And they'll combine forces to form an army bigger than any the world has ever seen, bigger really by orders of magnitude. And uh, these passages show that this Asian bloc will play a central role in the next world war. So when we see China arming Russia's military, that really shows us that the Russia-China axis is, it's essentially here. You know, it is on the scene now. And that article that I mentioned goes through all those various passages and sort of holds up current events alongside them. So it could be um, a powerful read, I think, for listeners who would like to understand this in that context. That was why the trumpet watches Russia allying with China this used to be something unclear or counterintuitive or improbable or impossible based on who you were talking to. Russia allying with China and look at what we're seeing unfold in real time between Russia and China. Uh, Richard Palmer, let's go from Asia over to the, uh, the Europe region and give us an update on what you've been watching. Yes, the... Uh leader of Germany's Social Democratic Union managed to uh, make a lot of waves, well, kind of doing the, the okie-cokie. Uh, he opened up the possibility of his party doing business with the alternative for Deutschland. This is a big deal. The AFD has been considered you know, completely unacceptable for, the, for any mainstream party to do business with, to have any coalition with. He indicated that uh, the, the, the mainstream right, the CDU, would be willing to make regional coalitions with the AFD. Uh, and of course, this would uh, this would very obviously be kind of a thin end of the wedge. It would open up the door for potentially in the longer term doing a deal at the national level uh, and uh, would be a, 
a way back to power for the for the right wing. They he then there was a big outcry within his own party. Uh, he came out the next day and basically said, no, 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 I've been completely misunderstood. We would never do any kind of deal whatsoever with the alternative for Deutschland. Um, and he backtracked on it. But it's clear that the top of the, the CDU is thinking about doing business with the AFD. And that's a huge shift in German politics and really, I think, raises the direct path to a much more right wing government than we have ever seen in post-war Germany. Uh, when we're talking about European elections, we also had inconclusive elections within Spain. This year, uh, you kind of have the main right-wing parties, you have the main left-wing parties. Neither of them have enough votes to form a coalition uh, because you had the Catalan separatists won enough votes that uh, you know, no one can form a majority government without them, and they don't want Spain to have any government. Uh, they don't want Spain to exist, really. So uh, th it's hard to see how that's going to resolve. Probably Spain will be headed for another set of elections in December. And so once again, you have this kind of continued Europe being ungovernable. You know, you look like uh, um, Belgium seems like they're on this track. The Netherlands seem like they're heading for inconclusive elections. That's the story of Europe right now. The rise of the, of the extreme right and nations becoming ungovernable through the standard democratic process, something that's going to lead to some pretty major political shifts within Europe and something we're working on talking about more for our next Trumpet Print magazine. So for your main story, you mentioned to me earlier, you have a story about Europe, but it starts in Africa. Yeah, I'm invading Africa because Europe's kind of invading Africa. Uh, and I think it is, it's a pretty dramatic story, certainly, where you had a coup in Niger. So uh, the, this particular general there has, um, he seized power basically on Wednesday, the head of, uh, it was kind of the, 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 the bodyguard unit or, or that kind of a unit. Uh, he's taken power. And this has pretty massive imp uh, implications for Europe. So... There are all kinds of Islamist terrorism problems across North, Af North Africa, especially in this area that's called the Sahel. And the Sahel just means the coast. And the kind of the idea is that the Sahara Desert is a bit like the sea. It's hard to live there, but if you have the right equipment and technology, you can travel over it easily. And then the Sahel is kind of the south coast of the Sahara Desert. This is where the Sea of the Sahara Desert meets the rest of the land of Africa. And it's a band that stretches kind of from Sudan all the way across um, to, to the Gulf of Guinea at the other side of Africa. And all across the Sahara, kind of on the northern coast and the southern coast, the Sahel, you have major problems with Islamist terrorism. You, know, you can think of uh, Libya, you think of even Egypt, where you had the Muslim Brotherhood recently, you've got uh, Somalia, you've got war going on in Sudan, uh, and then uh, you've got terrorist groups like Boko Haram, uh, and they're causing problems in Nigeria. You've, you've got you've got Al Qaeda in Mali. There are all of these terrorist problems, and you know what is going on in Ukraine is huge and, and rightly getting a lot of attention. But we've kind of forgotten that basically war is going on throughout North Africa, and it's a war that European powers are watching very closely because it has a very direct impact on them. Uh, if the burning is kind of smoldering and not too bad, uh, it doesn't affect them too much. If you have a major conflagration. Migrants start pouring across the country, their energy supplies are disrupted, uh, and they're in big trouble. 
So Europe, you know, just like America, just like Britain, they're not super keen at the moment on on military adventurism and getting involved in other countries. Uh, but they'll do it when they're forced to do it. So you've got this situation where they know Europe, they need to keep an eye on North Africa. They know that they might kind of have to jump in at any moment, but they 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 won't do it unless they have to. And to facilitate this strategy, Germany, German generals have written papers on this and in, in some of their think tanks and things like that. They've talked about, well, look, there's all of these fires going on. We need to have bases of our own and we need to have places where we've built up a relationship with the local government. We've trained the local armies. We have major bases. So if we need to very quickly scale up our attention, we can do that. You know, if you've got a, a thousand people in a country and then you need to ramp up and do some military missions, that's not too difficult. You probably, you've got air bases, you've got runways. If you've got nobody in a country, that's much harder. And so Germany initially settled on Mali as their kind of key partner in this region. And they were very open. If Libya exploded into, Spain, in, into, into flames, Mali was how they would deal with that. Uh, and you had Germany having a couple of thousand troops in Mali. It was their largest overseas military mission. They were leading the UN training mission. They were leading the EU training mission. They were training the Malian armed forces. You know, this was their place in North Africa. And then Mali had a coup. And they didn't get kicked out immediately, but the relationship between the government became much tenser and, and they have been gradually withdrawing. And Niger was what they settled on as their replacement. And so they've been drawing down in Mali and increasing their operations in, in Niger. Uh, and now Niger's had a coup. And just like in Mali, it looks like the Russian-backed Wagner group is behind this, this coup. It seems like you're going to have, again, a frosty relationship with, with German troops. Uh, France has had a large-scale presence in Niger as well. Uh, other countries in the Sahel region have had their own coups. There aren't really any good options left in this area. So Germany in particular, their strategy for dealing with North Africa is basically completely unraveled at this point. Uh, they know they still need to get involved in the region and their way of doing so thus far now has failed. And so I think this coup in Niger is going to pave the way for a new strategy. And you know, Europe can't just walk away. They might try, but in that case, they will be their attention will be forcefully grabbed and returned to this region because it's just too easy for anything here to send potentially even millions of migrants up into Italy and it destabilizes the whole of the EU. Uh, so this strategy has failed. They'll need a new strategy and probably this will mean bigger military involvements, more substantial numbers of troops, uh, bases in different countries, maybe getting involved more at a, at a higher level. Uh, and so watch for this to be a significant turning point in terms of Europe's strategy in North Africa. So that's a pretty clear forecast you're making that even if European leaders try to leave North Africa behind, they will not be able to. Uh, so that's something to look for. So why is it that you see that happening in the medium term? I think, I mean, this is what emerges, I think, just from looking at what's going on in the region, the recent history of this region. You know, if you look even you go back to, say, World War Two and North Africa was a major theater because if you're trying to become a dominant power in Europe, you have to worry about North Africa. You know, the Roman Empire, some of their richest provinces were in North Africa. Uh, Europe has never been able to ignore North Africa. So I think to be able to, to, to say they're not going to get away with ignoring North Africa now 
is a pretty safe forecast. I think when you then bring Bible prophecy into that, you get something that's even more specific and urgent. You know, Mr. Uh, I think of all of the uh, introductions to his articles, this has got to be one of the ones I quote the most, where he had uh, this article what called Watch Algeria. And he's talking about, in that case, it was a... Uh, a flare-up of, of terrorist violence between Europe and and radical Islam in Algeria. But he said North Africa is turning into a battleground with enormously important prophetic implications. And so you have by you have specifically this prophecy in Daniel chapter eleven that talks about this clash between a radical Islamist king of the south and a European king of the north. And our free booklet, The King of the South, will explain to you, you know, why this king of the south is radical Islamist, why this king of the north is a European power. But that prophecy specifically states that this clash is going to take place in North, that, that part of this clash will take place in North Africa, that it spreads over to North Africa. So it lists this European king of the south, so European king of the north, taking out the king of the south, and they go on to conquer Egypt and Ethiopia and Libya. The implication being that Egypt and Ethiopia and Libya were allied with the king of the south, that these were kind of in the radical Islamist camp. So part of this conflict is taking place within North Africa. And this, this same passage, it talks about the king of the north attacking the king of the south like a whirlwind. And this is... You know, that word whirlwind is it's a, it's a it's a phenomenal insight into the depths of the mind of God. Really, that the, there is so much packed into one word. You look into this Hebrew word whirlwind, and it is talking about uh, just the ferocious nature of this attack. But it's also there's an implication of coming from all sides, of whirling around. You have this kind of uh, the king of the south is pushing at the king of the north and then the king of the north comes against the king of the south from all sides and so the king and 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 so this tells us you're going to have this strategy from europe where they surround the king of the south they set up bases all around the king of the south whether it's you know in iran and in the middle east they set up bases to surround them there but also in north africa and what is amazing to me is you have that language and then you can turn to academic papers from German generals in 2015, 2016, and they say there's a ring of fire uh, across North Africa and the Middle East, and we need to be prepared to confront it all around this ring of fire. It's exactly the same language as the prophet Daniel from 2,500 years ago. It's incredible. That is what they're doing. And so what you're seeing, I think, is, is just a new phase in this battle. We're getting closer and closer to this battle described in in Daniel chapter 11 and, and it's amazing to watch because it just shows the power and just precise detail you know that doesn't that much detail being packed into those words being fulfilled in your news today cannot come from the mind of a man uh, and so you really see that in Daniel chapter 11 Daniel chapter 11 leads right into Daniel chapter 12 uh, it describes the the glorious return of Jesus Christ and so in that passage you see uh, Incredible! You, you see something that just points you to to God and His power to have world events be fulfilled uh, the way that He forecast thousands of years ago. It shows us that He is in control, and so that's why I'd just like to really point you to our, our newly newly expanded, updated, revised King of the South booklet. Uh, and it's, it's more comprehensive than ever. It's better than ever. Uh, and it gives you a, a more detailed picture of, of the mind of God and what He is doing in world events uh, than ever.
So with Europe being inconvenienced and even pushed out of certain countries in North Africa, that uh, trend seeming to run counter to what you're saying, the trumpet still asserts that that ring of fire forming there will be surrounded by a wider and larger ring of fire uh, of European firepower. Uh, so for our listeners who really watch world events, watch and pray, or who might not have read one or both of those titles, that was the book, The King of the South, newly updated by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, and the article also by him by the title of Watch Algeria. Mihailo Zekic, as I said, joins us once again from the Middle East to give us an update on the Middle East. Yeah, so it's been a pretty busy week in the state of Israel, especially. On Monday, the Knesset just passed its uh, judicial reform legislation, specifically attacking the uh, reasonableness standard in Israeli courts. We've talked about that on the Wednesday program before. Um, also on Thursday, Jake Sullivan, who's uh, U.S. President Joe Biden's national security advisor, went to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to talk with uh, the crown prince and de facto uh, leader of the kingdom, Mohammed bin Salman, about normalizing ties with Israel. And on Wednesday, a Turkish President Ritz, Recep Tayyip Erdogan hosted... Mahmoud Abbas and Ismail Haniyeh, two Palestinian politicians who represent two opposite factions, Fatah and Hamas, in Turkey, which uh, is a pretty rare joint meeting. We'll, uh, if anything comes up with that, well, it's a trend we're certainly keeping our eyes on. And plus, you just now sent through uh, an article you're working on for the Trumpet Print Edition about the new... Uh, the undead Iran nuclear deal. So that'll be something that uh, obviously our listeners can look at in the print edition when it comes out. But uh, we'll hopefully get an update from you on that as well. But this week, what would you see as the biggest Middle East story? Well, it's actually a bit of a uh, part two to what I talked about on the Wednesday program. The Knesset obviously passed its law on Monday, but... The Supreme Court isn't finished with its uh, with standing up for what it sees as its prerogatives. Um, they just agreed to uh, examine this new reasonableness law, uh, whether it's actually valid or not, with a scheduled preliminary hearing in September. Now, the Supreme Court in Israel has we've obviously talked a lot about how it's overreaching its power. It's uh, uh, accomplishing things that it wasn't originally meant to do, uh, including vetoing new laws. I did not think that they would have done it with this particular law, and I was not the only one to think that for a number of reasons. One, this new reasonableness law, the Knesset passed. They made it a basic law, which gives it semi-constitutional status. The Supreme Court has never overturned a basic law, though they have hinted in the past it's possible, and with pressure coming at them from the Israeli opposition, from the protesters on the streets in Tel Aviv and elsewhere, they may feel the need to do so. And also, this, the fact that they scheduled it in September, the current president of the Supreme Court, Esther Hayut, is scheduled to retire from her position in October. So the current leadership in the court want this examined and potentially overturned as soon as possible, even when you have an outgoing president, which is pretty unique. And, as some, and the fact that the, the law itself can, is supposed to curtail their power, the powers that they're now using to try and snuff it out. Um, on the one hand, this actually is a bit of a bonus for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, because 
by the courts doing this, this is basically confirming everything everybody's been thinking about the Supreme Court, that they're a self-serving, uh, unaccountable body that listens to nobody and makes their own rules to play by. And this is for a lot of his uh, support base. And for those on the fence, even, too, this is probably going to encourage Netanyahu's position. But the fact that they're taking this extreme of a move shows, A, just how serious they are with stopping this judicial reform from going through, and B, what lengths they're willing to do or to take to get there. And, I mean... If, if if the Supreme Court does this, no, this is basically saying the Knesset almost has um, substandard authority or substandard legal authority in Israel. It would basically um, – one of the cabinet ministers in Netanyahu's coalition, Itamar Ben-Gavir, said this would be a coup against the Knesset if this were to go ahead. So far, it's just a provisional meeting. Not all justices will be involved, but – or preliminary meeting, I mean. But – this could open up a whole new can of worms on who the final authority is of anything that goes on in the governing of Israel. And this could get pretty ugly very fast. So the Knesset is, again, Israel's parliament, Israel's you know version of Congress. It is the representatives of the people. We talked about that on the, on the Wednesday show. And these representatives of the people, as you say, have passed a law high enough to be part of Israel's basic law. Uh, so that's the closest thing they have to a constitution and it, and it's a limit on the Supreme Court and basically the Supreme Court of Israel says, oh, we'll look into it. <laughs> we'll look into whether uh, we can arbitrarily overrule the other the other branch. So this seems to be setting up for a larger uh, constitutional clash in Israel, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I would say so. I mean, Again, it's too early to tell uh, how this is going to turn out. The court could eventually accept it, uh, which I mean would end a lot of the drama. But they're again, they're under a lot of pressure not to do so. And if the Knesset goes ahead with this, I mean, the government has already gone this far. They're not going to back down now. Uh, we are, and both sides have hundreds of thousands of people uh, willing to take to the streets to support them. We could see a lot more rowdy protests, a uh, lot more riots, um, uh, civil strife, uh, whole sections of Israeli society seeing the other side as illegitimate. Um, we often talk a lot about the security situation Israel faces from the Arabs uh, and people in uh, the Palestinian territories. There's just as much of a threat of Israeli society falling apart just from the Jews turning on each other. Um, there's a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 that talk about uh, the state of Israel as well as, well as America and Britain falling apart due to internal division. There's going to be some uh, other mechanics that play into that, like um, uh, an economic blockade and uh, how uh, the English-speaking peoples and the Jewish state go through this process will be somewhat different. But it still talks about there's going to be, for all three uh, nations, there's going to be a lot of chaos um, before a lot of other problems happen, a lot of internal strife, a lot of uh, Jew turning on Jew or America turn, American turning on American, etc., etc. And this judicial reform process and all the the hubbub that's going around because of that could be, at least as far as the Israeli side is concerned, something that contributes 
to that. If our listeners would like to learn a little bit more just on the background on what's going on with uh, the Israeli Supreme uh, Court and the judicial reform process on July 11th, Brent Noctegal, who was my predecessor on this program covering the Middle East, recorded a Trumpet Daily episode called The Jewish State Has No Helper. That's The Jewish State Has No Helper. It's a really good resource to just fill in the background on what's going on in, in Israel and why we why it's important. To bring in some of the very latest news, have you seen, did you see Melanie Phillips' article today, Mihailo? I have not. I just thought this was fascinating and it ties in completely to, to what you've just been saying there. So she talked about a video of Ehud Barak that surfaced in 2020. Uh, I don't know. Have you seen anything about this video? Uh, no. I hadn't either. Um, so it's a video. He's talking to a bunch of uh, retired Israeli Air Force pilots, um, basically saying that he would launch a coup d'etat against Netanyahu with the backing of the military. And this was before the judicial reforms even came out. And in this video, he's basically saying... We'll look for an excuse. Once we find an excuse, we will try and use the military. They will say there were a few. He even says we're going to say that democracy is being um, removed. He said democracy is is a dividing line. So he said that they would they would claim that democracy was under attack and use that to launch a coup. Uh, and it ties in exactly what you with what you're saying that there's just the hatred of Netanyahu is so strong. They're like, well, we'd rather launch a coup. We'd rather have civil violence or, or and he even got pretty violent in this speech. If that's what it takes to take down Netanyahu. Uh, so it really does underscore the kind of the hatred that you see for for the other side within Israel that, that mirrors what you see in America. And, and you know, Bible prophecy says that there's some pretty uh, it's, it's taking us to some dark places. I didn't mention this earlier, but uh, you see a there's a big crisis going on in the Israeli military with reservists refusing to come up to duty with intelligence agents in places like Mossad, retired Shin Beit uh, agents saying that uh, they want this reform to stop their, their uh, uh, siding with the protesters, etc. Even though these kinds of reforms, A, have been talked about for a long time and have been wanted by a large segment of society, and B, uh, Netanyahu would not have been the only politician to bring this up had anybody else or had other people been in his place. So you're seeing more and more this is the legislation itself is not that extreme. They don't the people don't have as much of a beef with who, uh, what's being passed along. It's who's being the one that's passing it. And more and more you're seeing this support for, say, what the Supreme Court stands for or the support for different left-wing policies, as support for anything, they're all converging into basically we need to get out, get Netanyahu out. And it's becoming more and more blatant, and people are hiding it less and less as time goes on. A dividing line in the state of Israel, indeed. Jew turning on Jew, American turning on American, American turning on Jew, you mentioned. It seems like the biblical phrase there, the Jewish state has no helper, that Bible reference from that Trumpet Daily really describes uh, what you're talking about and where it's headed. So again, that's The Jewish State Has No Helper, and that's a Trumpet Daily program from July 11th, if you're interested in that. Please stay with us. We'll be right back.
Our final update before we get to our panel discussion is from Andrew Miller concerning the region of Anglo-America. Yeah, in Anglo-America this week, Joe Biden nominated a pro-Marxist general to lead U.S. Space Force. A new Gallup poll revealed that two out of five young Americans believe marriage is an outdated tradition that no longer matters. And Barack Obama came out in favor of sexually explicit books in school libraries. Now, that last story about Barack Obama, actually, that happened last week because I I mentioned it briefly in the um, my rundown of the other stories in Anglo-America before I got into the details of uh, some of the Hunter Biden plea deals. Uh, but I did want to um, come back to it this week. There's been more commentary on it, for one. And two, it was a big enough story that I wanted to get the Hunter Biden stuff in, but still actually spend some time on this because— um, as anyone who's listened to this program for any length of time knows, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, identified Barack Obama all the way back in like 2013 as a, an end-time type of Antiochus, who, someone who pretends to be more moderate than he is, um, yet while destroying the nation. And so sometimes, since Barack Obama is no longer in office, a story like this can kind of fall out of the news cycle pretty quick, even though this is... This is really where the mind of Antiochus is <laughs> uh, this week. And it um, it does actually even show just kind of like that Antiochus spirit of pretending to be your more moderate than you are. Is Even the late Rush Limbaugh, when he was asked to say something nice about Barack Obama, focused in on, he's like, well, he's like, compared to a lot of other politicians in Washington, D.C., uh, his Two daughters aren't like Hunter Biden's, and uh, his marriage is, seems functionally normal. They said he has a fairly good family. But then you get a story like this, which shows that there's actually not—there is something <laughs> innately wrong with the way this man thinks about family, because these school books he's defending now, Republicans are trying to um, get them out of the schools. There's probably about 175 different titles. Uh, they've got stuff like titles like gender queer and two boys kissing and uh just some really vile titles ron DeSantis actually did um a whole like video reel of like images from these books uh which you can't even really watch i mean children should definitely not see even adults shouldn't watch it because i mean it's they're cartoons but like very sexually graphic cartoons that uh, are in our schools. A number of Republican states are trying to get them out. But Barack Obama came out on uh, on Twitter saying that they need to stay in. Uh, actually, this is a direct quote from his letter. He said, Today, some of the books that shaped my life and the lives of so many others are being challenged by people who disagree with certain ideas or perspectives. And librarians are on the front lines fighting every day to make the widest possible range of views, opinions, and ideas available to everyone. So a number of <laughs> shocking things come out of that statement. As one, um, despite like his appearance having a good family, he, he admits that books like these shaped his life. And we know from more, other more recent biographies that like his nanny growing up was a man who dressed as a woman and put on lipstick in front of him so like he had a very vile and unorthodox um family structure growing up uh and now 
he's spending um, a good bit of his time this week making sure that books like these that have storylines about, you know, two teenage boys steal wine from their parents' liquor cabinet and get drunk and make out with each other. And, like, these are things that his administration is putting in school libraries. And he's probably coming out and defending because, um, well, because his ultimate agenda really is just to tear down the nuclear family. The prophecy that comes to mind, uh, there's so many you could talk about, really comes to mind this week, is Isaiah 3 and verse 9. And that whole chapter, Isaiah 3, is about family breakdown and upside-down families. But verse 9 really focuses in. It says, The show of your countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe to your soul, they have rewarded evil unto themselves. And so it's getting to a point where... <laughs> It used to be books like these, they they might have been trying to like slip them in under the wire through school libraries. Uh, now it's out in the open, and this is very much, Barack Obama's letter is very much a declare your sins as Sodom. He's like, yes, I know about these books. I know about how sexually graphic they are, and I'm staking my claim that uh, as the former president of the United States, I want to defeat all Republicans who would remove these from them because uh, things like this are a good thing. Uh, and so really a dramatic fulfillment of that prophecy, uh, except for the um, literature, I guess, offer today. Uh, we usually put America Attack under the show notes, and maybe we can again, uh, because it is really relevant to the Antiochus angle. Uh, but I also thought we'd put in an article I wrote a few years ago just called, like, Nationalizing the Family. Uh, which kind of goes through the history of some of the communist attempts to tear apart the nuclear family, just showing that, like, if you're, um, <laughs> because families are self-sufficient units, where if you especially have, like, a stay-at-home mother and a breadwinning father and then kids who eat food their parents provide for them, they're very independent, uh, like Little House on the Prairie style independent, if you go very traditional, uh, from Big Brother, uh, and so the communist movement found out a long time ago that if you were going to have the state come in and solve every problem in society, uh, th their main competition <laughs> is the family. You either rely on your family or you rely on the state. Uh, and so for the state to win, uh, Marx and Engels on it very early, like I said, you actually have to destroy the family structure. Uh, because it is kind of one or the other. The more you rely on your family, the less you rely on the state. The more you rely on the state, the less you rely on your family. And so there is definitely a an ideological reason a lot of these Marxists, like Barack Obama, who is uh, tutored by a man who is both a Marxist and a uh, amateur pornographer, uh, uh, that you're you're using that to destroy the family. Um, not just for your own gratification, although that might be in there as well, but but also for a political ideology that where you, you destroy your family structure and then just take over the take over the nation. And to understand the nation, the state, and the family, you can go to the trumpet.com slash literature. Uh, you mentioned nationalizing the family, an article titled Nationalizing the Family and uh, America Under Attack. And if you wonder why uh, this issue of sex and and marriage and family is becoming so important and so inescapable by this point, uh, I would add The Missing Dimension in Sex by Herbert W. Armstrong. That, that'll give you some clarity, some focus, some balance, some gravity, uh, some orientation in this uh, maelstrom of, of uh, sex uh, 
and some hope and some inspiration. Uh, so again, that's The Missing Dimension of Sex by Herbert W. Armstrong, and you can look for that in the show notes. Thanks for staying with us here on Trumpet Hour so far. Next up, our panel discussion. We'll be right back. Welcome to our final segment this hour as we complete the week in review. I'm Philip Nice. I'm here with our panel of writers from the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine and thetrumpet.com. And we want to discuss something that happened this week, made all the more important for its historical associations and its future ramifications. Yes, it was 70 years ago yesterday that the Korean War finally came to an end. That war was started back in June of 1950 when a North Korea People's Army leader named Kim Il-sung led an invasion of South Korea. Uh, then came three years of brutal war with the communists of North Korea pushing against the South and the Chinese communists helping them, and with the uh, South being aided by the U.S. and several other U.N. members. The violence raged for those three years, and then on July 27th, of 1953, so that's 70 years ago yesterday, that's when the armistice was signed. The war had been fought to uh, essentially a stalemate by that time. The two sides were dug in along the now famous 38th parallel. That's just the circle of latitude that is 38 degrees north of the Earth's equatorial plane there. But uh, that line became the border between North Korea and South Korea. And by the time the armistice was signed, two to three million civilians had died on both sides. And then South Korea and its allies had 800,000 military casualties. And North Korea and its allies had probably somewhere around the same. So altogether, close to uh, four million people were killed, possibly even closer to five. So this was short, but an exceptionally bloody war. And the rate of civilian deaths was remarkably high, you know, higher than in World War II or Vietnam. So it was 70 years ago that that ended. And this anniversary was, of course, quite a big deal this week for both North Korea and South Korea. And they both marked the anniversary yesterday in, in quite different ways. North Korea actually invited delegations from China and from Russia to join in big celebrations with, you know, thousands of citizens who have re re rehearsed for months to kind of commemorate the armistice. The North, they view themselves as the victors in the war. I would argue that there was no victor really in this war, but, uh, but they had a giant military parade in the capital, the kind of parade that dictators love so much. Kim Jong-un, of course, was there. He's the grandson of Kim Il-sung, the, uh, the man who, who really started the war. So the same dynasty is still in power there in North Korea, and, and Russia and China are, are still there. So you see that some of the same allies are really still rallying behind the North. And um, th in this parade, they showcase some of North Korea's most, most powerful nuclear-capable missiles and other military equipment. But then in South Korea, the mood was much more somber. Uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol has, you know, he invited dozens of foreign war veterans to sort of honor the the fallen soldiers. So it was just a much more sober affair there. So anyway, the, the war may be long over, but deep divisions remain across the 38th parallel. And those were very evident in the different ways that North Korea and South Korea marked the milestone yesterday. 
The Korean War occurred immediately after World War II, and that was when Britain and then the United States, as well as Russia, uh, just had an overwhelming war effort and sufficient will uh, to win the biggest conflict in the history of the world. Uh, then immediately after, these nations are at a standoff with the Soviet Union uh, that came to be known as the Cold War. Uh, the conflict in Korea was was the first major armed conflict uh, in that era uh, with the Soviet-supported communist North Korea against the U.S.-supported South Korea. And as far as America's success in that war, it was markedly different than the world war that had just ended five years ago. Yeah, that is a... Uh... Definitely true, and we've been following um, our organization, the uh, Philadelphia Trumpet and its predecessor, The Plain Truth, has been following <laughs> these developments since before World War II ended. Uh, the Plain Truth founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, actually, he even wrote in all the way back in 1941 that um, America should not have allied with Joseph Stalin to defeat the Nazis. They should have relied on God to do that. He pointed his readers back to a prophecy in Second Chronicles 16, 1-9 that talks about a time when King Asa uh, relied on the king of Syria instead of on God. And then God told Asa that he'd done foolishly, and because uh, he'd done foolishly, therefore, from henceforth, you shall have wars. Uh, and Mr. Armstrong pointed out that, as I said, because America allied with Stalin like that, that it was going to be cursed with military defeats in the future. Now, America did end up winning World War II, but by the time the Korean War came around, Mr. Armstrong said this, has said, unless they correct that mistake, go back and, uh, and start trusting in God, that they would never win uh, another war, uh, which has actually happened. He, um, back when the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, he, he wrote uh, a co-worker letter that he said, Unless or until the United States as a whole repents and, re and returns to what has become a hollow slogan on its dollar, in God we trust, the United States has won its last war. And as um, uh, Jeremiah just explained, it was like the Korean War, America didn't win. It ended in a stalemate uh, with those same Russian communists that we helped in power. Uh, in the 30s and 40s um, in using the calculus, like, oh, they're going to help us defeat the Nazis, uh, that boomeranged, <laughs> boomeranged right bad on us because it's like, uh, unlike God, the Russians weren't helping us due to, uh, out of like the kindness of their heart. Uh, you're building up your own power block. So you lost the Korean War. Uh, we came out um, looking like fools in the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, Vietnam War, another one where that was even worse than Korea. That was not a stalemate. That was just an outright military defeat for the world's most powerful military. Um, <laughs> probably the closest we've ever come to having a military victory uh, since uh, World War II was um, Operation Desert Storm against Saddam Hussein. Well, we actually did stop the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Uh, achieved our military objective, but left Saddam Hussein in power and had to go to war to hit him again uh, a decade or so later. Uh, took him out of power that time, uh, but then left uh, just this quagmire uh, vacuum of like terrorist hotbed that um, 
is still we, we, that we eventually <laughs> withdrew from. So that was a that was a long drawn out one, but it's like now today looking back at it, at the time you might have said we won Iraq, but now today is like said America definitely has not won the long game in Iraq, uh, and then of course then there's the Afghan uh, debacle as well. We all remember that from a couple summers ago, with the the helicopters uh, evacuating people from um, the embassy in Kabul and just turning that over to the Taliban. So it's like looking back at all of America's military engagements uh, since Korea, and even including Korea. Uh, there haven't been any victories because we're not we're not trusting God, like Mr. Armstrong said. We we should have all the way back in 1941, uh, and these days we're not actually even trusting ourselves, our own power. We've got a powerful military that we don't use most of the time. Uh, you trust on um, in foreign allies uh, who always stab you in the back, and just our foreign policy has been a mess ever since Mr. Armstrong uh, wrote that more and than I, seven decades ago. And I think that point about not even trusting in our own power is just one of the fascinating turning points of the Korean War. Like, America could have won the Korean War, or the United Nations, as I should say. There was far more than just America involved, of course. Uh, but the United Nations could have won the Korean War. And what you had was this decision, it was, it was this unique, almost bizarre decision of, we will fight communist Chinese soldiers in North Korea, but we will not fight communist Chinese soldiers in China. And this kind of like, well, we're at war in China on this part of the map, but we're not at war in China on this other part of the map. And the, what Mr. Armstrong got back to with the Korean War is that God promised Britain and America, these descendants of Israel, and you can read more in his book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy on that, that they would, God promised them blessings. And he said that they would receive these blessings, whether or not they deserved them, whether or not they obeyed God, those blessings were coming. But if they didn't obey, those blessings would be taken away. And instead, you would have curses set in. And one of those curses, as God says in Leviticus chapter 26, that he would break the pride of our power. He would break our kind of our self-confidence, our confidence uh, in the power that we have. And it's it's fascinating that you look at these prophecies and God says he's going to take our military power away. But before then, he said, I'm going to break your confidence, your pride in your power. You'll have that power. You won't use it, be able to use it. Uh, and that's what we saw in the Korean War, where uh, it really was that turning point that Mr. Armstrong identified. And you know, there was... You know, yeah, this was a it was a tough situation in the Korean War. There were reasons for not wanting to go to full scale war with China. Uh, the atom bomb had been tested. Russia tested their first atom bomb in 1949. Korean War was 1950. So you know, Douglas MacArthur had some talk of of turning northeastern China to glass so that China couldn't continue sending forces into North Korea. You know, there were real concerns that this would start up a nuclear war. There were concerns that if America got into a full-scale war with China, that Russia would then conclude, well, America does not have the resources to be in a full-scale war in both China and in Europe. Therefore, we could invade West Germany and get away, away with it. 
uh, and that Western Europe would potentially fall. So, yeah, you know, there's, there's all of these what ifs, there were all of these considerations. But the result then was an America that was kind of paralyzed and couldn't take decisive action. They weren't confident. Uh, MacArthur ended up getting fired for insubordination as he made public his disagreements with with Truman over the Korean War. Uh, but it was you know, fundamentally America lacked the the confidence to win that war. And I think you could trace that all the way back to even World War Two or the, right after World War Two. Yeah, I, I mean, if America had had, to, had America had the resources to force the Soviet Union to leave Poland and Eastern Europe, they could have done it. And you just think how much radically better the last 80 years would have been if they'd have done that. And that's kind of yeah, then the Korean War wouldn't have been an issue. Then uh, there's so many problems. You, you could have avoided the Cold War before it even started. Uh, but we and, and America had incredible power. The only nuclear nation at that point in time, it didn't use it. And the world is immeasurably worse because of that. Uh, you know, that's where you see those curses setting in it. And then you see we suffer and even the world suffers as a result of those curses. So this week we have U.S. allied South Korea subdued in its commemoration of that Korean War, that that uh, turning point. And we have the Chinese allied, the communist North Korea still there and nuclear armed. Uh, North Korea is nuclear armed. And it just makes that statement stand out when the United States had just won its greatest war, the greatest war in the history of the world. Uh, that statement by Herbert W. Armstrong, the United States has won its last war. He said that when the United States was one of, you know, only two superpowers. And then after he died, it became one of only one superpower. And through all that time, the United States had, in fact, won its last war back in 1945, uh, World War II, even though it was nuclear armed, even though it had this enormous military and still has this enormous military. And as you pointed out there, that will to use the enormous military with the nuclear threat dissipated, disappeared. And that statement does ring quite true. You shall have wars. Uh, that you mentioned there, Andrew, and that statement by Herbert W. Armstrong still holding true. In spite of all of that power, the United States has won its last war. If you'd like to learn more about Herbert W. Armstrong's forecasts, go to thetrumpet.com slash literature. He was right. Look for he was right at thetrumpet.com slash literature. That's our program for this week. Email us your thoughts at letters at thetrumpet.com. We thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. We thank Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester, as always, for their engineering and production of the show. And we thank you, most of all, for listening to The Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.